Hi everyone, welcome back to Rabbis and Disciples. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what it looked like to follow a rabbi like Jesus in the first century world. And it is astounding. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube and you find this teaching to be helpful, like this video, subscribe to our channel, and share this episode with someone you believe could benefit from it. All right, let's jump back into Rabbis and Disciples, part three. For those of you who have been following along in this series, you will know that in part two, we talked about the Jewish educational system in Jesus's day. We worked through all the various levels and we gave this analogy that if you were a basketball player, going through these various levels would have been like going through middle school and making your team and then making your high school team, your collegiate team, and then becoming an NBA draft pick in becoming a Talmud, a disciple. And then we noted at the end of that episode in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus went along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he saw two pairs of brothers and he called them. He said, follow me, which was like the technical way of saying, I want you to be part of my discipleship group. I want you to be a disciple of mine. And this was mind-blowing, if you will, because in the context we recognize, oh man, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're not in anybody else's discipleship group. They hadn't made the cut. They weren't the best of the best. But we noted that they weren't ignorant either. Jesus didn't just haphazardly choose his disciples, but he chose them nonetheless, which was a rarity in Jesus's day for a rabbi to pursue and seek out his disciples. And we talked about how Jesus is the kind of person who pursues people to follow after him. And so now in this episode, I want to take that further and answer really kind of two big questions. When Jesus said, follow me, and then they became a disciple of Jesus, what in the world did that look like for them? And then secondly, what does that look like for us today? So in part two, I showed you this becoming a tell me slide of all of these different points. And we kind of just breezed through that because I mentioned we would go into greater detail here in part three. But let me just note something that I didn't mention in part two and some of you may have picked up on is the age of when you became a disciple. I mean, I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that Jesus' disciples were like 40 and 50 years old. But in the rabbinic system of the day, they're probably somewhere in their middle teenage years. In fact, from the text, our only indication of someone who is kind of beyond the teenage years is Peter. He is married, and according to Perke Avot, according to one of these tractates in the Mishnah, that we've looked at already in this mini-series. You were 18 approximately when you got married, and that was for guys. Uh, so Peter is married, so he seems to be, you know, at least in his later teens, but he's probably in his early 20s. And the reason why is that we've got a hint of that here in Matthew 17, 27. Some of you know the story. The people who come to collect the temple tax, which was required only for Jewish males 20 years old and older, they come to Peter and they say, hey, don't, you know, doesn't your rabbi pay the temple tax? And then Jesus says, Peter, go, you know, throw a line in the first fish that you snag, 
check the coin in his mouth, it'll pay the temple tax for me and for you. They're in the midst of all the other disciples. Why is it just for Jesus and Peter? Because Peter seems to be the only one who is old enough to have to pay the temple tax. So we don't know this for certain about the rest of the disciples, but these are just some of the hints we have in the text. And we know from this slide, and we'll talk about this in the next episode, is that it was about the age of 30 that you could become a rabbi. And so it would be really odd for the disciples to be older than the rabbi. So for disciples to be, you know, 35, 40, 50 years old, you know, big, long, you know, beards and gray hair, that's probably not the case whatsoever. So what we have here is that somewhere in those middle teenage years, you would pursue a rabbi to study under. And again, it wasn't the norm for the rabbi to pursue you, but Jesus did that. And it was a rabbi with authority that you would go and pursue or would want to become a disciple of. Now, to take this metaphor further, being a Talmud, again, becoming an NBA draft pick, to become a rabbi is like becoming an all-star. But then there was another level of rabbi, what was called a rabbi with authority, that was essentially a hall of famer. Now we're going to spend the entire next episode talking through Jesus and his authority and fleshing this out and giving you the backdrop on this and why Jesus is constantly being questioned about his authority all over the Gospels. But suffice to say, a rabbi with authority was a very unique rabbi who was itinerant and also had disciples traveling with him. Now there may have been, you know, a, a basic rabbi that had this as well, but one of the things that David Biven points out is that he believes that in Jesus' day, rabbis with authority, and again, the next episode, I'll unpack what that means and how they could come up with new legal rulings and uh, all these different interpretations, is that in Jesus' day, there was probably somewhere between 35 and 60 rabbis with authority. Now, again, nobody left a record. We don't know that for certain. That's David Bivens' estimate. But my point is, is that Jesus traveling around with disciples was not a dime a dozen. People would have known who Jesus was, and to be a disciple of his was remarkable. And so we've got this going on here. Now, because the rabbi with authority could make new interpretations that were not commonly accepted by the community, and again, we'll talk about this in the next episode, the focus of a disciple wasn't just on the scriptures, wasn't just on the written Torah, wasn't just on the oral Torah, it was also additionally what we call the rabbi's yoke, or what they called the rabbi's yoke, and that was the interpretations that the rabbi had of the scriptures that were typically unique just to that rabbi. So we see here Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, talking about his yoke. What is this? It's his way of reading and understanding the Hebrew scriptures and applying it in the world of his day. And so the disciples would have focused in on Jesus's yoke, his interpretation methods, his understandings, his teachings based on how he is reading the biblical text. That's what they became known for. And so you have this rabbi with authority and their focus is on the rabbi's yoke. Now, you're called a Talmud when you have been invited into the Talmudim, this discipleship group. 
And I just want to pause for a moment and just define this for us because this is what's going to be the essence of what this episode is helping you to understand. The word Talmud gets translated into English as student, learner, or disciple. And just calling it a disciple is really great. But for many of us, we almost think about this in a student context. Jesus was the teacher, the disciples were the students. And the moment we say that, now we start thinking about, okay, well, you know, we've all been to school. And so, you know, you sit in a classroom, you listen to a teacher teach, and it's, this is kind of what the relationship looks like. In our last episode, we talked about how Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, Beit Midrash, that that was largely centered at the synagogue or a nearby building. But Jesus is an itinerant rabbi who is out and about, and so the disciples are following after him. So it's not a classroom setting, and it's not in the same context of what a student wants to know from the teacher. You know, typically speaking, as a student, you want to know, okay, well, what's going to be on the exam? What's going to be on the test? What do I need to learn in order to reproduce? And that's not what it was like to be a disciple in Jesus's day. In fact, I could just say it this way, that the goal of a disciple wasn't to know what the rabbi knew. It wasn't just a transfer of knowledge. It wasn't just, well, I want to know how my rabbi thinks about this passage or what their interpretation method is. Part of the yoke is the understanding, but the bigger part of the yoke is the application. And so it wasn't just knowing what the rabbi knew. The goal of a disciple wasn't to know what the rabbi knew. It was to be who the rabbi was. The goal was to be just like your rabbi. Totally different than just a student-teacher relationship. Agreed? So when Jesus said, follow me, it's walk after me, learn from me, mimic me, do what I do, not only in my understanding and the teaching of the text, but how you live it out in the world today. And so you literally followed your rabbi and you did this for an indefinite period of time. That when the rabbi was out in the bout, you were with the rabbi. Now, you weren't with your rabbi 24-7, but you were with your rabbi essentially much of the rest of the time, of whatever gap that you would have in a 24-hour time period. You were following your rabbi. You were watching what they were doing, how they were interacting with people, how they did what they did in a social setting. If the rabbi went into the bathroom, you went into the the bathroom as well. Even if you didn't have to go because the rabbi may say a blessing and you wanted to know what is the prayer that my rabbi is saying. You wanted to mimic every facet of your rabbi's life because you wanted to be just like the rabbi. And so you would go off on these extended periods of time. In fact, we have in the Mishnah that if you are a disciple and you're married and you're going to be gone with your rabbi for more than 30 days, you have to get permission from your spouse in order to go. And so this is an indication for us that they would go off on these long periods of time. And we have these moments where all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples are around the Sea of Galilee. And then in the very next moment, because it's an economy of words, Matthew will tell us in Matthew 16, they're at Caesarea Philippi. 
That's 25 miles away. And then they're going to be up there for a number of days because following this, you have the transfiguration. And so we know that they're away from home for extended periods of time. And so you just simply followed your rabbi, oftentimes having no idea where you were going. Because it was never about the destination, it was always about the journey. And it was also about trust in your rabbi. So in Matthew 16, when it says, and then they went to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I don't think Jesus told his disciples where they were going. I think he just said, come follow me. And they would just follow after, not even knowing where they were going or what they were going to do. Now, no doubt Jesus is having discussion with the disciples along the way, but I don't think that Jesus laid out an itinerary for them. That was part of the rabbinic world, was the aha moments and the, oh my goodness, are you serious? We're really going to Caesarea Philippi? It's just an amazing way of training the disciples along the way. And as you were with your rabbi, as you were doing what the rabbi was asking you to do, oftentimes you would be cooking meals, you would be doing any tasks the rabbi has asked you to do, and it's all for a purpose. It's almost kind of like, you know, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel, right? Do this, and Daniel's like, I have no idea why I'm supposed to be doing this, but the master knows. It's very much like a rabbi-disciple relationship with the karate kid. And so as you're going about, you are mimicking your rabbi, you are following your rabbi, and this idea of being covered in the dust of the rabbi came out of this. And we see the actual reference to this in Perkei Avot, uh, Mishnah again, the sayings of the fathers, where it says, let your house be a meeting place for the rabbis and cover, it's actually the word powder, which is really cool, yourself in the dust of their feet and drink in their words thirstily. So the context here is that, man, if there is a rabbi who is out and about, like open up your home to them. And as they come in, like sit at their feet, learn from the rabbi. And so you actually have this phrase to sit at one's feet in the gospels in Luke chapter 10. So this is a story of Mary and Martha. And she, Martha, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And so Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, Martha's in the back doing all the work, and you have this interesting discussion that takes place, but this phrase, at the Lord's feet, was a technical term used in the first century world to be a disciple of someone. Mary is a disciple of Jesus. Now, she's not one of the 12, but we also know that there are different levels of engagement with the rabbi. At one point, there are 70 disciples, and then there's 120 in Acts. And so Jesus has his inner 12, but Mary is sitting at his feet in order to learn. And so you've also got this in the book of Acts with the apostle Paul. In Acts 22, 3, Paul is arrested on the Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount, he speaks up and he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. At the feet of, this is Paul saying, I was a disciple of Gamaliel. And so the idea here was that you would sit at the rabbi's feet in order to learn. And so some people go, well, being covered your, yourself in the dust of the rabbi is because you're sitting at their feet and, you know, they're, they're, they're teaching and whatnot. And so you're getting their dust. But more often than not, what scholars believe is this idea that because you so badly wanted to know what your rabbi knew, mimicked what your rabbi did, that you would walk so closely following your rabbi that by the end of the day, the dust of their feet would be all over you and you were now covered in the dust 
of the rabbi. Isn't that cool? And not only was it just following after, but the relationship wasn't a teacher-student as much as it's a father-son relationship. Now, when we dip into the Hebrew scriptures, you've got these amazing pairings that function like a rabbi-disciple relationship. You've got Moses and Joshua. You've got Elijah and Elisha. In fact, when Elijah is going up in the chariot of fire, notice what Elisha says here in 2 Kings 2. And Elisha was watching it and he was crying out, my father, my father. How fascinating that he calls Elijah his father. Well, Elijah has been pouring into Elisha. It is a rabbi-disciple-like relationship. Uh, Paul will do this with Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 1, he addresses Timothy and he says, My beloved son. It's a father-son relationship. By the way, this is why it would have been so devastating and so painful when Judas kisses Jesus' cheek in order to betray him to the authorities. It wasn't just a disciple you know, betraying his rabbi. It was like a son betraying his father. That would have been gut-wrenching for Jesus. And so you see this rabbi-disciple relationship as a father-son. In fact, and I'll just put the reference up here from the Mishnah, is that there is a, um, a quote in the Mishnah that basically says this, that if your earthly father and your rabbi are both captured and you can only ransom one, ransom your rabbi. Because your earthly father brought you into this world, but it is your rabbi who will get you into the world to come. It's just a really neat way of just going, this is how tight it is to be a rabbi and a disciple. And so the goal of a disciple wasn't to know what the rabbi knew. It was to be who the rabbi was. It was to be just like your rabbi. This is what it meant for Jesus to say, come, follow me. And I don't know for you if this is something that you've heard before or that you know of, but I know that a number of years ago when I started to learn what it was like to be a disciple in the first century world, I was convicted with the reality that I believed in Jesus, but I wasn't following him like a disciple would have in, would have in the first century world where I'm pattering my entire life after Jesus, trying to understand what did he teach? Why did he teach it? How was he saying this applied to his world? What does that look like from my world? Like I was deeply convicted because I knew the stories of Jesus. I just wasn't living the stories of Jesus. I knew about Jesus and I believed certain things about Jesus, but emulating him, waking up every day and going, I want to become more like Jesus today. That wasn't on my radar. And in fact, I believe it's not on the radars of many Christians. Not all Christians, but for many. In fact, my friend Jeff Mannion has this amazing quote where he says this. He says, we hire Jesus as our savior, but we fire Jesus as our teacher. Like we want the salvation side that Jesus brings, but this idea of dying to ourself on a daily basis, to pick up our cross, to follow him, to recognize that he's going to call us to go places and to do things that we don't understand and we're not going to get all the details. And Jesus goes, I'm just asking you to follow after me. 
the hard work and effort it is to dig into the scriptures to understand what Jesus taught and why he taught it and how he was understanding his Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, and then understanding how then Paul was taking that forward and how that applies for us. It is hard work. There is great sacrifice in following after Jesus, but there is life to following after Jesus. And I was deeply convicted on this. You know, there's this moment where Jesus says something so penetrating in the Gospels. And in part one, we talked about this difference between calling someone a rabbi versus calling them a Lord. To call them Lord was my master. I will pattern my life after you. Luke 6, 46, Jesus says at one point, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Or as recorded as in John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him or believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus goes, you got to abide in my word. You got to live out my word. It's not just about believing in who I am. It's actually living out what I've asked you to do. Friends, you've heard me say this before. Salvation is never the end game in the scriptures. It's the beginning. It's about discipleship. Conversion launches the process of now following Jesus and going, what does it look like to emulate, to mimic him in our world today? A disciple wasn't someone who simply knew what the rabbi knew. It was that they wanted to be who the rabbi was, to be just like the rabbi. And so friends, I want to encourage you as we are moving into this new year to have a recommitted attitude and perspective on what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. That we don't just hire him as our savior and fire him as our, as our teacher, but that we would look intently at our own lives and ask the question, are we following Jesus at the level that Jesus wants us to follow him? And if not, that we would look intently on how we can up our discipleship game, become a more faithful follower of Jesus to be covered in his dust every single day and truly be a disciple who walks after him. So friends, there you go. There's part three, rabbis and disciples. Again, in the next episode, we're going to jump into the authority thing. And wow, wait till you see how that thing gets played out. But for now, thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. And may you walk out the text well in your life.